Heavy metal jacket, so-called fast fashion companies producing clothing loaded with toxic chemicals. Junk in the trunk. Elephants may actually know how to induce their own labor. And announcing the births of not one, but two million-dollar babies. Hilary Swank welcomes twins. We're here to get you through it all. Our goal is to deliver a better future, one healthy baby at a time. We're the Green Docs, two OBGYNs talking about how the environment and how it affects women's health and birth outcomes. I'm Nate DiNicola, a OBGYN in Newport Beach and the recent groom uh, from a New Orleans wedding. And I'm Bruce Picard, a Southern California OBGYN, a self-professed eco-wacko, and an aspiring, semi-charismatic white male vertebrate. If you saw 60 Minutes last week, uh, April 30th, there was a segment on what needs to be done to improve pregnancy health in the U.S. Many, many people are working on this, but not all of them are healthcare providers. Today, we're going to be speaking with two women who lead a nonprofit called March for Moms, which is at the heart of that 60 Minutes story in Louisiana about what they're doing to improve care for the most at-risk mothers and babies. But first, Nate, what do you make of that headline about toxic chemicals in clothing? Well, we, we talked about this last episode. Uh, that was how Jeannie Connery first um, brought you know, kind of this topic of environmental toxins to the attention of our national OBGYN society, that there was lead in lipstick. Now, in this case, these were from some suppliers from uh, Asia, uh, where they tested like babies' clothing and found really high levels of these of these heavy um, uh, these chemicals, and that's kind of what we were talking about. You know that, that nobody's really testing a lot of these either um, infant uh, like baby bottles for BPA. They're not testing the beds for flame retardants, uh, and I recognize the name of one of these suppliers uh, as a company that also provides. Uh, watch bands. People know I'm kind of a watch guy. And I, I will admit, I, I had bought one from this company uh, years ago. And when I opened the package, I mean, you could just smell the fumes coming off of it. Uh, so as I read the headline, it didn't, it didn't surprise me at all that, that they were full of toxic chemicals. Yeah, two things about that story jumped out at me. One of them was that these aren't just contaminants. They were at levels literally 20 times higher than what's allowable uh, by the health standards. The story came from Canada by, by their health standards. Uh, so it's not just a simple contamination. They're actually purposely putting lead uh, into the, the dyes that they're using on some of these things. And, and by the way, these are, are typically coming from companies that sell just massive amounts of really cheap jackets and shirts and purses and things like that. But it's also uh, particularly dangerous because a lot of these things are for children or babies. And as I think, Nate, you pointed out in our last episode, children put everything in their mouths. They also absorb more through their skin. So they're particularly vulnerable to this stuff. So it's a bit of a disturbing story. Yeah, that, that's really the heart of the problem. Uh, I mean, if adults were exposed to, say, certain amounts of these chemicals, it would not be good, but they typically have the system to withstand it. For the children and for uh, pregnancy and the developing fetus, it's a vulnerable window in human development, and those toxic chemicals have impacts that can last an entire lifetime. So uh, I, I have since heard that some of the companies pulled some of those products, 
But unfortunately, we don't have a lot of reassurance that is an ongoing correction. Um, in fact, what we typically see in these situations is what's called kind of regrettable substitution. So they'll uh, reintroduce the product with some slightly different variation, but the chemical has the exact same property, exact same toxicity. Uh, so moving on, Bruce, did, did you know that elephants can induce labor? <laughs> First of all, I got to hand it to you, junk in the trunk. That's <laughs> That makes up for a lot of your bad puns. That's really a good way to put this story. Hey. I love this. It's uh, it's essentially the flip side of the story we told last episode about dolphins as doulas, that elephants may somehow know how to start their own labor. And in case you're playing Trivial Pursuit and somebody asks which mammal has the longest gestation, the longest pregnancy period, you'd be correct if you said elephants, because they are pregnant for 22 months, nearly two years, which is an amazingly long time. And this particular article noted the findings of a researcher who observed a a very, very pregnant elephant walking for miles well beyond where she would normally go, and then devouring an entire tree that was not on her usual diet, that humans actually have used for a long time to bring about labor in many parts of the world. This is a a member of the Borogonacea family, also known as forget-me-nots, although in this context maybe it ought to be impregme-nots. Anyway, she delivered a very healthy baby boy elephant a couple of days later. So it's uh, just fascinating how animals somehow seem to know these things. Do you think that's why they were looking for induction agents? Their, their gestational period's so long, they just can't take it anymore, like they've already done 20 months? That's, that's got to be enough, right? <laughs> be enough for anybody. I've always said that uh, women make it through 10 months. I don't think most guys could make it through 10 days if they had to carry a baby, but that's another topic. And how about these uh, twins that Hillary Swank just had? She's 48 years old. She's 48 years old, and she just had twins. And uh, I, I, I got to be honest, the first thing that jumped out to me about the story was that she mentioned uh, the song she was going to play during delivery, which was salt and Pepper's Push It. And I've, I've actually had a few moms choose that song. It, uh, it really does seem to help the birthing process to kind of have that, that, you know, like inspiration and melody going along with you. Uh, but also, you know, when when you see the headline, you see a woman who's 48 years old, and uh, it just kind of brings to the topic of what uh, really a high-risk pregnancy is and what counts as advanced maternal age. Now, 48, you know, not to pile on for Hillary Swank, but that does count as advanced maternal age. But the term itself is a little bit unfair by modern standards. Uh, the way we derived this initially was really comparing, like, when it would make sense to do testing for genetic conditions. Uh, so when the test that could determine whether there was a, you know, a significant risk for, say, something like Down syndrome or other genetic condition, when that equaled the risk of the amniocentesis. Now, back in its origin, uh, that risk of roughly 1 in 200 matched age 35. So the risk of the test was about 1 in 200. The risk based on age-related risk was at 35. And so that's how we came up with advanced maternal age. But, but now with modern enhancements and modern improvements, you know, if you were to kind of recalibrate advanced maternal age, it'd be down somewhere like 27 to 29, which uh, I think, you know, is, is fairly uh, <laughs> absurd for how young that would be. And it's just kind of, a, I think, a chance to highlight that the, the overall term advanced maternal age gets thrown around a lot and uh, really doesn't mean what it initially was, was kind of uh, intended to. 
And even at 35, I think it's a, a really good way for an obstetrician to get into trouble with his patients or her patients to call a very healthy 35-year-old advanced paternal age. That's a very, uh, I think it's also inaccurate because uh, it really depends upon the person and what health risks they have. Uh, and also one of the things I always reassured patients was that even with the genetic risk, uh, it's not like it goes bad rapidly from 35 on, it's a very gradual increase in risk of chromosomal problems after the age of 35. So uh, Hillary certainly is, uh, I, I don't think you could argue that that's not a high-risk pregnancy. Twins all by itself is, and then on top of that to have her be well into her 40s. And uh, congratulations to her and the family for what I'm sure is quite a, an amazing event. I love the part where Million Dollar Baby, of course, the name of the movie she got the Oscar for, was actually brought into this story because the ultrasonography tech typed that into the photo of one of the babies flexing their arm uh, or you know just looking like they were flexing their arm and, and labeled it uh, as a Million Dollar Baby. So it's a great story. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty incredible picture and uh, yeah, a really great great story and uh you know I, unfortunately in addition to like the phrase advanced maternal age these other things have popped up into uh common language that were not medical terms at all like like geriatric pregnancy is not something we talk about so that that just came out of the ether uh it's not a medical term you should never be thinking of yourself as as that uh and you know we, just to kind of give a little more reassurance about even the age-related genetic risk, even around age 40, like, like, like where it is a little bit higher, the risks are about one in 40 overall. So that means that if we were to hand you a lottery ticket and tell you that 39 times out of 40, you win the lottery, you want that ticket, right? Like you would still take those chances. So the odds are still massively in the favor of a lot of these women who uh, unfortunately have been, you know, kind of called by, by some version of the field, advanced maternal age, geriatric, high risk, and uh, we just keep the risks in perspective. Yes, it's very important to know what those risks actually are and not just that they're in a category of higher risk. Right. So, so Bruce, uh, I have a little bit of a surprise for you here today. We have uh, joining us not just our guests coming up who work for March for Moms, but uh, a very uh, special mom for the Green Docs, uh, for myself in particular. We're joined here by my mom, uh, Dr. Mary Dinacola, who's joining us from where you can usually find her, which is at, uh, at the urgent care or at uh, her, her job where she works nonstop. Uh, and she's taken a few minutes away to join us here, uh, mostly so we can celebrate this Mother's Day episode by uh, me wishing her a happy Mother's Day. So nice to have you, Mary. Thank you for being here. I got to ask, right off the top, uh, we were in New Orleans together. It was so great to see you and Greg and to visit with the the, the small group of people that was there uh, and to do the second line dance together and all that. How was it for you? What did you think of that whole experience? Oh, my gosh. New Orleans, I have always thought you needed a passport to go to New Orleans. It's a whole different country, practically. So... That was that was awesome, and to be there for Nathaniel's nuptials that was that was just amazing. And and you too, nice seeing you there, Bruce as well. I had a ball during that second line. Had you ever done a second line before? Oh yeah, that that's <laughs> a New Orleans tradition, of course. <laughs> 
How did you end up in a second line before this? Because there was obviously a great reason to do it when we were there, but... Well, it's really for any celebration. Uh, the history is different versions of where it came from, but it's like the impromptu, um, regular people in a parade celebrating something. And I think, Nathaniel, weren't we at Commander's Palace one time? And it was your graduation. And so we just took the white napkins and had the whole restaurant start participating in a second line. <laughs> Yeah, you showed some true leadership skills there. Uh, we were exactly right. We were there uh, celebrating the like, like Tulane residency graduation. And they have a band that comes around. So you can choose a song to play. And next thing I knew, you had chosen the classic second line song. And we all got our napkins out. And we were like marching around the restaurant doing a second line uh, around Commander's Palace. Yeah. Well, Nate, I'm, I'm starting to get the feeling your mom likes to dance. Is that something that's been part <laughs> sure of the family do. tradition? <laughs> yeah, when in New Orleans, yep. Uh, so the other question I have to ask you, since I know our four or five listeners that we have are thinking the same <laughs> thing, is tell us a Nate story, something about him that summed him up early in his life. Is there, is there anything you remember uh, that, that sort of portended which way his life was headed? <laughs> well, gosh have to tell me what age you wanted to know about. If you look behind me right now, you'll see a little Mickey Mouse telephone back there. That was one of his favorite toys as a toddler. And as you can see, Mickey is smiling and it was the best babysitter. I could just plop Nathaniel in front of that phone and he would laugh and talk and and then I could get a whole bunch of stuff done. <laughs> so, and then... As he got older, he liked to play a few little tricks, like teaching his younger brothers that a cat says bow-wow and a dog says meow. <laughs> and Well, so here he is now being a communications person with a podcast. So not a big leap go. from Mickey to where we are today. I think so. And he is doing a great job. And uh, I appreciate you including me on this Mother's Day episode because being a mom is probably the best job in the whole world. Well, mom, so I've got, I've got to ask you, since uh, one of the themes here is to try to provide some reassurance to people that even though things might sound bad sometimes, there is also a lot of uh, hope and silver lining to things. We talk a lot about environmental toxins. Um, how, how many toxins was I exposed to during the pregnancy uh, that I still managed to like, you know, form full sentences as an adult some summer? Well. <laughs> You realize that way back then, uh, many children were conceived in a pool of alcohol um, and, and still survived. And, you know, the human body is designed to heal itself. And we've survived for how many gajillion years? Uh, so... But back in the 80s, did, did they talk at all about like environmental toxins during prenatal care? Was there anything they warned you about besides maybe smoking and alcohol? No. In fact, and if I go back even further to a generation before, women were even told that cigarette smoking was okay. No, there, there wasn't anything. Once you found out you were pregnant, you made sure you stopped drinking, got prenatal vitamins, and... Even this podcast, I've learned from you guys already. I had ordered some little toys for my great nieces and nephews, and I opened the package, and it took a while to get because it was from not from the United States. 
And the fumes that came out, um, I threw them out. There was no way I was going to send them to anyone. And I would so like to know that tree that that these moms can go chew on <laughs> to go into labor. <laughs> they should plant them all around the hospital. <laughs> you should. <laughs> yeah, I remember my mom carried my sister and I back in the mid-50s, and she smoked. And mm-hmm. our uh, obstetrician was a family friend. My grandmother used to run his office in Beverly Hills. Uh, I think she smoked a little less was what she said, but that might have just been something she said out of feeling guilty later on. But uh, you're absolutely right. These things do evolve over time, and thankfully we are fairly resilient creatures despite uh, some prenatal inputs. We still would do well to avoid. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, but that knowledge is always evolving. Mm-hmm. And it's it's great that now you've got good, solid science to, to give to people. So, Mom, you also, uh, in addition to being a, a doctor of nurse practitioner, have had a long history in breastfeeding. Was um, did, mom, did, did, did the moms you took care of ever ask you about what was safe for breastfeeding and what would be, like, dangerous if they were consuming it? And uh, were they interested in environmental things related to lactation? They were interested in... And yes, could the medicines that they take um, be okay with breastfeeding? And, you know, in an ideal world, we'd be like the caveman and no mom would take any medicines at all. But that's just not reality. Most moms are on about five medications. And we, uh, we had a very good resource. And it was, it was rare that we would take a mom off of breastfeeding because of a medicine. Almost every antibiotic is fine. And I mean, you know, Nathaniel, in pregnancy, it's different than in breastfeeding because there's so many filters that 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 toxin would have to go through. Really, just breastfeeding prevents the baby from being exposed to the harms and potential toxins of formula, of artificial milk. Yeah, so if you're weighing the kind of, you know, relative dosage of things, uh, the, the breast milk would be much, much cleaner and purer than uh, something that would be packaged and maybe, you know, um, in contact with plastic for a long time with environmental mm-hmm. and endocrine disrupting chemicals and uh, would provide some immune support uh, in addition to, you know, being, being toxin free. Sure. And extracted from the underside of a four legged animal that hangs out in a, you know, cow pasture and uh yeah and and breast milk was jam-packed with probably 200 ingredients things that things that we can't even write a prescription for that protect the baby all those breastfeeding moms delete deserve some extra gifts on mother's day it's not easy to to nurse a baby so well it was wonderful having you it's wonderful being uh getting to know more of the family. And, and uh, I, I, my only wish is that I could introduce you to my mom because I think you two would be fast friends. She passed away 10 years ago now, but she was an artist and she had that same really warm, sweet smile that you do, uh, which when you're a child with a mom like that just makes the whole world seem like a much safer and friendlier place. So thank you for being here. Well, my pleasure. And you know you're part of our family, Bruce. So thanks for inviting me. This was a cool surprise. You'll be back.
All right. Thanks, Mom. Okay. Happy Mother's Day. Bye, guys. Bye. And we're back. In preparation for our interviews coming up in a couple of minutes, we wanted to share a little bit about how we got to be here having this discussion about uh, racial disparities in birth outcomes. Nate, you and I met and started working together back in early 2016 because we were both interested in looking for evidence that climate change might already be affecting births in the U.S. And at the time, we had no idea what we'd find. But we started reviewing articles linking various types of climate change impacts to birth outcomes. And after three years and nearly 1,900 papers, we ended up with 68 recent studies on U.S. domestic populations because we wanted to stick with things that were happening here and the most commonly studied health risks linked to climate change and pregnancy, which were and are heat and air pollution. And out of those 68 studies, we found that 57 of them, uh, and these are big studies, over 32 million births in all, showed a very strong connection between these really common exposures, hot temperatures, air pollution across the country, and preemies, low birth weight babies, and even stillbirths. And one of the things that jumped out in looking at the data was that the highest risk populations were women with asthma and minority moms, especially black moms. Over half of the papers found worse outcomes for these women consistently. Yeah, and this was not an outcome we were initially looking for, but once we saw it, we couldn't possibly ignore it uh, because it became one of the uh, central messages of, of the paper. And it likewise is a central message in the conversations happening right now about pregnancy health and, and how well are we taking care of moms and supporting them. And whenever we approach this topic, I, I'm always kind of torn on how to frame it because uh, on the one hand, this is one of the most serious health outcomes we deal with in, in medicine. I mean, it could not almost be more important than, than a healthy mom getting through her pregnancy and having a healthy mom and a healthy baby. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I also don't want to uh, kind of ignore or forget all the gains made in maternal health over these last few decades. Uh, often kind of pregnancy outcomes are framed almost in murky mythology, you know, like once upon a time, women died at very high rates in childbirth. And we kind of cite like Shakespeare plays and all these stories. And it seems like it's not really hard data. Uh, but as we look at the data over the last several decades, we have definitely made improvements in, in how moms can expect to experience and, and survive their, their pregnancies. Uh, and up to the 1990s, the gains were rather progressive and I mean, almost trending toward, toward zero. Uh, however, in the last few decades, that has reversed, and that's really where we want to draw the attention. So you could look at this in terms of raw numbers, uh, where it's uh, roughly 30 per 100,000, which comes out to you know, 0. 0.0003. That sounds like a very low number, 0.03% if you make it a percentage. But it's been rising, and it's about three times higher risk for um, black moms. And so as one of the most important racial health disparities, we have to really focus on what's happening there, uh, where improvements can be made, and why the differences are happening. Because uh, what happens in one section of maternal health is really just a window into what can happen um, anywhere. So uh, as we look at kind of how we can address these uh, racial health disparities, I think there's some you know, we, we kind of put this context here, um, and as we study it more and more to look at the preventable causes, some of it does seem to be that, uh, you know, 
when certain women talk about their complaints, when they say they have abdominal pain or they say they have heavy bleeding, it's not heard the same way and it's not listened to the same way and therefore not acted upon fast enough. Uh, a story like this was featured in uh, the TV show The Resident and that shows kind of how uh, bias can cause delay in care and delay in care in some cases can result in the most uh, horrific outcome, uh, maternal mortality. Uh, and we also put that in the context, again, of gains that have been made in uh, maternal health. Uh, Atul Gawande, for example, frames this very well in his book, uh, Doing Better, uh, in the, the chapter um, Performance, uh, where, where they kind of go over how, in some ways, maternity care has outperformed other parts of medicine. You know, things like uh, heart disease and diabetes and cancer cannot show the same gains that that pregnancy health made in the last uh, 50 years, but we still have a lot of work to do in closing these gaps. And our own uh, exploration of this information has ended up with us being able to talk to some very interesting audiences. Back in September of 2020, a few months after our paper came out, we were invited to address a number of members of the United States House of Representatives Democratic Caucus. And this group was chaired by Hakeem Jeffries, who I think is now the head of the Democratic Caucus in the House. But a number of representatives from across the country, along with a couple of women who were representing some other nonprofits that were very concerned about these trends with uh, harm coming, especially to minority women. And what I really liked, and I think Nate, you and I talked about this, we really appreciated the fact that this wasn't just a session to get together and and uh, shake our heads about how things were trending in the wrong direction, but really it was a constructive conversation about what sorts of things the federal government might do to reverse these trends. And there's actually some movement on that uh, front, right? Yeah, that was that's what's so encouraging about uh, this caucus and and the work being done was that there there are some real action items being put forward by Congress. I know people like to make fun of Congress and say phrases like, well, you know, that piss poor job was good enough for government work. Uh, but we here want to highlight sometimes where, you know, the work really uh, is being advanced. And so there is a uh, concept in, in legislation called an omnibus act, where you bring a whole bunch of legislation together and kind of pass it in bulk. Now, because there are so many problems that we can solve in maternal health, a bunch of bills have been brought together and given the you know, very pun intended here, Dame, the Momnibus Act. And one of the key things that these address are uh, putting systems in place to prevent uh, maternal mortality, especially where we've identified causes that can be prevented. So there, there's kind of a subset that we talk about of preventable pregnancy-related uh, deaths and and illnesses. And that's where the Momnibus has put, put its effort. I think... Uh, you know, the, the exact language is uh, to end preventable maternal mortality, severe maternal morbidity, and maternal health disparities in the United States. That, that's the core theme of this uh, Momnibus Act. And in addition, we have uh, had the, the really great privilege of working closely with some of the congressional offices for a subset of that uh, called Protecting Moms and Babies Against Climate Change Act, which calls for really straightforward things that, that we do think will make a big difference. So things like infrastructure, uh, providing air conditioning, providing uh, uh, ventilation in homes, uh, training doulas and other uh, community care workers to educate both patients and and other practitioners on it, and and in addition to all of you know kind of these national legislation acts, there have been uh, a number of 
of organizations that have come forward to really take take the lead on this. So today we are we are so thrilled to be joined by the leaders of one of those organizations, which is called March for Moms. Uh, we'll be joined by uh, Lenicia Russ, their executive director, and Yulia Labko, uh, the director of advocacy and policy. They have been patiently waiting in the green womb, and so we now would like to invite them to join us now. So without further ado, we welcome Lenicia Russ and Yulia Labko from March for Moms. Uh, welcome to the Green Docs. Thank you Thank for you. having us. So, Lenicia, maybe you can tell us uh, just, first of all, a little, little bit about March for Moms and how you got involved. Yes. So, um, March for Moms was actually founded in 2017 um, by OBGYN Dr. Neil Shaw and a midwife, Dr. Ginger Breedlove. Um, and at first, the organization was founded to raise awareness on maternal morbidity and mortality that was happening in the U.S. at the time. Um, and it was all volunteer led and Yuyu was there from the very beginning. And I joined actually in 2021. Um, so a little over two years now as the executive director and our approach has pivoted um, since the initial uh, founding of March for Moms to include more work into community-based organization and uplifting community-led solutions and advocating for federal and state policies. It's such an important direction to take things, uh, and one of the signs of the maturation, uh, I think, of, of uh, organizations like yours is that you do make pivots to go in the direction of where you can have the most impact and see the most bang for your buck, as the saying goes. So uh, that that gets us uh, past your introduction, and, and Yulia, you've been there since the beginning. How did you end up uh, with this particular group of people? Yes, uh, thank you for having us. Um, and I, I have been with March for Moms since its inception, or yeah, birth, I guess. <laughs> um, I am a midwife by training, and actually, one of the founders, Dr. Ginger Breedlove, was my professor in midwifery school and my advisor. And um, she still to this day remains a uh, very big men mentor to me. And we all know if when your mentor calls on you and offers you an opportunity, you hardly ever turn it down. And it was so such a um, an organization with a mission that was very close to my professional and personal heart um, that I became involved in the fall of 2017. And my main role has been to lead... Um, the advocacy and policy efforts for the organization. So my role centers around preparing um, our followers, really families and moms, um, and those who are very passionate about maternal uh, health and legislation to prepare them to speak to our legislators and to give them guidance and support as to how to translate their stories and bring them to the folks who really control a lot of the policy and legislation from the top down and help us change some of these outcomes that way because really they work for us and those stories need to be brought to the forefront. So I focus largely on training um, and having an advocacy agenda. And then as of late, like Lenicia mentioned, we are working closer with community-based organizations and 
helping them meet the needs that they have. Some of those are legislative needs and some not, um, but that's kind of the trajectory of where we've been with our advocacy. And did you have any training whatsoever as a, in midwife school on legislation and policy or, or maybe in college or something? Um, I uh, Formally, I did not. We all took an advocacy little course in midwifery school um, where we got to, you know, learn about legislation and midwife certifications and things like that. But it's always been a passion of mine. Um, I did do some work through my professional organization, the American College of Nurse Midwives. Um, I got to go to the White House um, during the Obama administration with the Alliance for Nurses um, for Healthy Environments, which is an organization that um, brings a lot of the nursing professions across the, the practices and um, their goal is to very, very much what, what you talk a lot about is, uh, utilizing healthcare professionals to spread the message and spread the word that, uh, climate change has such a big impact on our health. Um, and we are on the front lines. We're on the front lines of being with our patients, but we're also on the front lines to disseminate that information. So I've just had a lot of little advocacy inspirations, I would say, in my life. Um, and I'm so joyful to be able to do this job. So your, your organization is called March for Moms. Uh, and and if I recall correctly, it, it was in some early forms, an actual event in Washington, D.C., where people would gather and uh, if not march on Capitol Hill, certainly congregate on Capitol Hill. I remember when I was in <laughs> D.C., I joined for several years uh, and uh, I, I heard from Charles Johnson talking about the story of his wife, Kira, one of the most powerful stories I think you'll ever hear. Uh, so I will we'll, we'll kind of direct people to to that story uh, that's all over your website uh, as one of the kind of most, um, yeah, most powerful examples. And at that time, a lot of the talk was about maternal mortality review boards uh, and a call for that, uh, which... I think in some ways set up some success stories because some of these bills were passed to implement those. Uh, Lenicia, what, what kind of uh, success stories have you seen and been most uh, called to uh, in your work with March for Moms? Yeah, so we actually, um, we did have a rally last year um, and we centered it on um, the different injustices that families have. So we went from maternal, you know, maternal health to maternal mental health to economic justice for families to reproductive justice, stillbirth prevention, and just bringing all those challenges that families are experiencing to light. And so this year, we wanted to focus more on bringing that community aspect. And I feel like some of our successes are around um, supporting community-based organizations that's meeting the needs of their communities every day um, and are often under-resourced. So last year, we actually started an Impact for Families program with, um, in partnership with Maven Clinic, which is a virtual health, women's health care company. And we chose two Black-led community-based organizations that's doing the work. One was Chocolate Milk Mommies based in Birmingham, Alabama. 
um, and their mission was to increase lactation in Black communities, um, as well as Black Mamas ATX, which is a full spectrum doula organization that's providing services to Black moms and birthing people in Austin, Texas. And I feel through that program, providing them with the support that they need has been one of our biggest successes, but also continuing that work on to this year's cohort. Um, in which we have selected an indigenous-led organization, excuse me, as well as a Black-led organization. Um, and also leading entire community work, but having our Enhancing Community Resilience Workshops. So Nate, you were a part of the first one we did, which was preparing and responding to natural disasters. It was virtual. Um, but last year we ended up having the event in person and live streaming it and really um, focusing on community-led solutions and bringing innovative programs from um, community-based organizations across the U.S. Um, to share their work. And so those are just some of the successes we are happy with. And I'm sure um, Yulia can also speak to some of our legislative uh, and advocacy successes as well. Yeah, um, I I would say a lot of our legislative successes are a product of coalition building and collaboration with other organizations. I think the number one thing to take away from working on any large issues such as climate change or maternal health or those two together is that working with our partner organizations has really helped us um, be where we should be and bring our followers where they should be um, to support legislation. Uh, Nate uh, briefly just talked about maternal mortality review committees. The Preventing Maternal Deaths Act of 2018 was passed and signed into law, um, which provided uh, uh, funding and infrastructure for maternal mortality review committees that actually were not in every single state. Um, and those that did exist a lot of times didn't have funding or didn't have uh, the structure to be properly uh, conducted. And so we don't when we don't do that, we don't have data. We don't we don't know why moms are having poor outcomes. Um, so that's one example. Um, we work on, with our partners on legislation all the time. The the most recent even the. Um, Pump for Nursing Mothers Act that just got signed into law like in December of 2022. We worked um, with our all kinds of partner organizations on that. So I think a lot a lot of our legislative wins are working together with our partner organizations and spreading the words to the word to our followers to be able to reach out to their legislators and show support for a lot of this legislation. So we almost act our hope is to act like a bridge between the public and a lot of this uh, sometimes wonky legislative uh, content and to kind of bridge those two together. It's an incredibly powerful thing to, first of all, elevate stories. You've all been talking about stories that are so moving when you hear them from people, but so many folks have stories that never get told or at least don't get outside of their own families or their own circle. And these things can really move uh, elected officials and people who are in charge of making these kinds of decisions when they hear about the real human cost or, or uh, 
complications that occur when when people don't really think things through or don't realize what sort of individual impacts they'll have. But the other thing that I'm hearing from you that's that is also very encouraging is that there's no resistance at all to working with other nonprofits and other organizations. That it's actually the opposite. That's that's a sign that I think is we're seeing across the environmental. Uh, spectrum now is that we are far more likely to work with one another and and not stay stuck in our silos uh, and and share best practices and work together because boy we're a whole heck of a lot more effective when we do that and it's all about results at the end of the day that's the stuff you take home not that you need to be able to take all the credit for something but you really want to see these things happen because they have such an immense uh, potential to to save lives and to uh, prevent suffering so uh, anyway, you're really cheering me up with all this. <laughs> well, and, and speaking of elevating messages and elevating stories, uh, 60 Minutes just had a large expose on uh, access to maternity services in Louisiana, where March for Moms was was prominently featured and, and was a part of that story. Uh, now, part of that story was still the challenges that are being faced. So uh, what, what what are some of the biggest challenges that you see either from that, that 60 minutes story or just from what you're working on right now? I would say in regards to what I see here specifically when it comes to the community work is communities have the solutions that they need, but they don't have the resources to bring them to, to light and to carry them out and to implement them. And they're under-resourced, but they're still providing the services as needed. Um, and for example, one of those challenges is Louisiana, like so many other states, we have maternity care deserts here. Um, but there are smaller organizations that's working in those communities that they're, they're serving moms and burdened people. Um, so, but how can we get them what they need to continue to do so in a sustainable way? Um, and we know that the work they're doing is improving, improving outcomes for moms and burdened people. So how can we, um, as a collective, get them what they need? And of course, we're the green docs, so we got to ask, how do environmental factors and, and climate change specifically enter into your thinking about, about these priorities and, and uh, what you think will happen in the coming years? So when Nate was a, a speaker at our um, first Enhancing Community Resilience Workshop, and he came and spoke about wildfires, at that time, Hurricane Ida had just hit Louisiana. Um, and living here and being from here, I witnessed firsthand the work that these community-based maternal health organizations were doing for families. They were providing mutual aid. They were providing um, supplies for infant feeding. They were providing diapers. Um, the lights were off for days here. Um, they were provided access to clean water. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why we really wanted to focus that first workshop on preparing and responding to natural disasters. Um, our work with um, the environmental impacts has come further. Um, speaking of, we in two weeks, we actually will be participating in an event for hurricane, uh, a hurricane preparedness resource fair. Uh, where we will be able to meet families in New Orleans and provide them with tools and resources on how to prepare. Um, uh, hopefully it's not an active season, 
but um, we want to make sure that families are prepared ahead of time for that work. We're also in a working group with this organization based in Oregon called Nurturely, and they are currently working on wildfire recommendations. And uh, so they started this work group called Wombs and Wildfires that March for Moms is participating in um, to help facilitate those discussions and draft recommendations um, for the for our folks in Oregon. Um, and so that just being a part of the work that um, both national organizations and community-based organizations are doing um, in, in these environmental works and climate change work um, is, is how we're getting it done. And I'm sure you'll, you might have some something to add as well. I want to give her a chance <laughs> to talk about no, it. No, you summed it up really well. I think those are always, I think grassroots thinking at grassroots level is always the most beneficial to moms and families in the immediate. And I think thinking from like the top down, I think we need to start using how the outcomes of specifically mom, childbearing people and postpartum people, their experiences during natural disasters or other things that are connected to climate change, how, how those populations in that moment in time are treated and, and the outcomes they have should be a litmus test for how well we're addressing climate change risks. I mean, we use maternal mortality. We always talk about how maternal mortality gets used as a barometer of how well a society is doing. Well, I think we need to take it one step further and apply that to the most immediate threats to our health, which climate change is, is obviously one of them. Yeah, well, in addition to some inspiring work, you've uh, made me aware of some of the most catchy names for organizations that I've come across in a long time. We had, we're going to have to list all those in the show notes, uh, <laughs> beginning with Wombs for Wildfires. I mean, I, I want to go Google that site right now. I want a t-shirt with Wombs and Wildfires on uh. it. I want to see what that looks like. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it does feel like, you know, almost so long ago that, that we were working together on this disaster preparedness. Um, and, uh, I mean, you, you've come really a long way in, in such a, really a short amount of time. I mean, it feels like it was a long time ago because there's that COVID era when it was a time warp for everybody, <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like. Um, and, you know, returning to New Orleans recently, uh, where I just was for my wedding, and Bruce was there strutting a second line along there with us, <laughs> it, uh, it did remind me of all that early work on on disaster preparedness. Uh, at the time, it was hurricanes primarily in, in the Southeast, although we covered in the last episode that now tornadoes like that, that kind of area is widening. And now even places like Atlanta and Charlotte and perhaps New Orleans, or at least you know a wider section of the Southeast has to think about that. Uh, so it's great that we have wombs for wildfires and, and all these organizations kind of rallying together. Uh, this is our Mother's Day episode, so we want to kind of do something for all the moms out there. Uh, if people want to support uh, your organization and other ones like it, what, what's the best way for them to, to, to do that? I would say following us on our social media channels um, for information. We do a lot of our advocacy education through social media, through our email listservs. Um, people can learn about what bills and campaigns are going forward. Um, and find tangible, practical ways to to advocate for them. Uh, we also share organizations that we're working with, whether that's national organizations or community-based organizations. So you can find 
um, an organization that might be close to where you're from to volunteer with or get involved with. Um, we also have some toolkits on our website, which I can let Yulia talk a little bit more about, but also attending any March for Moms programs and events. Um, we will be bringing our Enhancing Community Resilience Workshop back uh, this fall, where we will be um, talking about or focusing on rural maternal health. Um, and so just participating in those programs and events and also always, always any donations to either March for Moms or your local organizations is always helpful um, so that we can continue to advocate um, for these issues and make change. Yulia, I'll let you talk about the toolkit. Yeah, March for Moms does have a wonderful toolkit. Um, it's available on our website and it is designed for folks who maybe have advocated a lot and maybe have never advocated. Um, so it takes you step-by-step step, um, through the advocacy process, whether it's a specific bill you would like to reach out to your legislator about or um, a letter you want to write. It can be really in any capacity. And so it provides some uh, very easy, easily digestible statistics, um, doesn't get too into the weeds. And then step-by-step -step instructions on how to reach your legislator, um, whether in person or by phone or now by Zoom. A lot of them do now for, for since the pandemic. So pick your pick your poison and uh, reach out to them and talk and share your story. And um, all of that is really nicely condensed on our website. So please check it out. It's an amazing uh, amount of work you are all taking on, and I don't see you slowing down. It just seems like you are growing rapidly in terms of your impacts, and it's it's uh, very inspiring to hear about this. Uh, I, I believe really strongly in the words of, of Ben Franklin, and there there's a, a saying of his about how injustice won't end until those of us who are unaffected are just as outraged as those who are. And so I think it's incumbent upon everybody to take part uh, in, in any way that they can to stop these racial outcome disparities and birth outcomes that we've been talking about and maternal mortality. Uh, it's it, There are things that we can all do. And I just want to thank you for setting an example of, of, of doing so much with the resources that you've been able to come upon and to share them uh, widely and to continue to look for innovative ways to make people's lives better. So uh, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Thank y'all for Absolutely. having me. Thank you. Yeah, and, and wishing uh, all your families a very happy Mother's Day. Um, okay. And just a reminder that, that we will have all these links in the show notes. We, we've learned about some really amazing organizations and some linkages. And so uh, we'll, we'll you know, direct our audience to do some some more investigating there, too. Every episode, we like to leave the audience with some action items. Uh, so if you heard what we've talked about and feel like uh, the message is compelling and you want to actually do something, we will uh, provide this final push. This episode, the call to action really is to help a mother out. Uh, we've, we've heard now about some of the challenges they face, and they, they really do a lot for us. You know, we, we literally could not be here without them. And Pregnancy already has enough demands about what they can and can't eat and all the normal fun things they have to give up, like sushi and alcohol and maybe a lot of other foods they like. So 
we, we want to help moms out and to consider the ways that we can protect and honor our mothers. Uh, you know, sure, flowers are nice and so are tickets to the concert at the spa. So spoiler alert for my mom. Uh, if she's listening to this, she may know what her Mother's Day gift will be now. Uh, but, you know, we on our on our TikTok channel, uh, where you can find us, by the way, uh, Green Docs Pod on TikTok, we kind of talked about the popcorn gate, which had celebrity uh, moms deciding, uh, kind of weighing in on who should help clean up a popcorn mess that some kids made. Uh, and not, not to weigh in on who should have done it, but there was overall in the comment section kind of a theme to help moms out uh, because there, there is a broader responsibility society has in protecting moms, uh, not just from spilled popcorn, but but from the environment uh, to ensure what we had proposed in our last episode about a healthy earth creating a healthy birth. So as always, of course, vote for and support leaders who will include things like expanded maternity coverage and expanded access to maternity care in their in their legislative efforts. Support organizations like March for Moms and Wombs for Wildfires and all the um, nonprofit and other organizations that that they mentioned and that are included in our in our links below. And as always, we have to keep in mind, not just because we're green docs, because, but because it has the added benefit of being true, that climate change is a threat multiplier. So whatever issues we are facing now in terms of helping have healthy pregnancies and, and babies, uh, the, there's going to be more pressure on those outcomes uh, due to the risks that we talked about earlier in the episode uh, related to climate change. So anything that you can do within your community with elected officials to push the transition to clean energy and away from the burning of fossil fuels to electrifying buildings uh, and on and on will help reduce reduce the risk uh, of health problems for everybody and pregnancy and pregnant moms uh, especially. But let's zero in a little bit uh, also on how us as individuals who are maybe living with or married to someone who's pregnant can uh, can pitch in in a meaningful way. Uh, we've talked a little bit in uh, the last episode about uh, an example with uh, Jason Kelsey of maybe not being the most sensitive and attuned spouse during labor. But given the semi-Herculean task that carrying a pregnancy for a full term is for so many women who are often busy working and doing other things. I think if you're a partner to someone who's pregnant, uh, whether it's her first baby or she's had three of them and and sailed through all of them, uh, there are things that you can do. One of them is to regularly check in with her and ask her open-ended questions like, what do you need me to do today? Or how are you doing? How are you feeling? Instead of just assuming that you know, maybe she's done really well before, but maybe this pregnancy is harder. Encourage her to talk, and then probably the most important thing is just listen to what she has to say. Really try and listen. So essentially, it's about tuning in to what's going on with her uh, at least every few days, if not daily, and then showing up. Uh, Prioritize her prenatal visits, and if there's one or two that you can't be at, uh, find out from her what you missed. Show by uh, virtue of your time and attention that you really do care and you are there to help her. 
You can keep a companion prenatal schedule. Maybe in the first trimester, you can help her things, help her to have things that w- might settle her stomach if she has some early pregnancy nausea. So tea with ginger or peppermint may come in handy. And second trimester, when the body aches really start to kick in and the pregnancy really starts to uh, pull on her spine, you can help maybe with massages. Uh, it's never a bad idea. Uh, third trimester, be the one that is proactive about getting the, the nursery ready or the go to the hospital bag ready. Uh, there are so many different ways you can show that you care. And, and this has, uh, again, the benefit of being useful and no doubt paying uh, long-term dividends with uh, her being much happier with you uh, and, their, and your growing family. And most of all, as we come to Mother's Day, don't forget to thank your mom for all that she's done for you. Uh, nobody's perfect, no moms are perfect, but they make such an incredible effort uh, to just get us to the point where we are now. And it would be entirely inappropriate to miss that opportunity at least one day out of the year to thank your mom for all she's done. Yeah, that's such a great list, Bruce. I mean, every day in clinic, I see uh, either dads or partners, uh, spouses who who are coming to the visits. And uh, sometimes there is a bit of that deer in the headlights kind of look like they almost don't know what to do. So I think we've outlined some things they really uh, could, could take to heart. Yeah, and they don't need to be experts either, Nate. They, they just need to be involved and open to suggestions. It's not about getting it right. It's not about understanding all the physiologic changes that are going on. It's just about demonstrating caring. And that's what shows up most importantly. Yeah. Uh, now, for our next episode, be sure to tune in uh, because it's getting hot in here. As summer approaches, we're going to help you prep for those high temperatures and the big heat waves. Uh, so be sure to tune in for, for that and our expert guest who'll be joining us. Uh, that's a surprise also, in addition to my Mother's Day surprise uh, today. And be sure to find us wherever you get your podcasts, uh, the uh, Apple Store, uh, Spotify, and, and all the socials. Uh, and stop by our website, greendocspodcast.com, where you can send us comments and questions that we'll address uh, in the next episodes. Uh, and check out the links for references from, from this episode. Through the end of May, by the way, you can get a 20% discount on great women's workout wear that's made from ocean plastics from one of our supporters, uh, a company called H2OM, H2OM. And if you use code GREENDOCS20, all one word, GREENDOCS20, you get a 20% discount on this beautiful, uh, colorful substitute for Lululemon. And be sure to check out our our TikTok page. Uh, We have a, a great interview with... Uh, the the female founder of H2OM, uh, talking about, uh, yeah, how these plastics are being pulled from the ocean and repurposed into some really cool activewear. This episode of Green Docs was written by Bruce Picard and Nate DiNicola and produced by John Beethan of Imagine Podcasting. Check out our website, greendocspodcast.com. Like, share, subscribe. Hope to hear from you. Take care. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day.